You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, December 12th, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. And we have a guest rogue this week, our good friend, Brian Trent. Brian, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Thank you. So good to be here again. Brian. Hello, Brian. Hey, everybody. (laughs) Hello, sir. It's been a while. You were actually on our 24-hour show that we did. Uh, You've been on on the audio-only podcast a couple of times, and we brought you back to chat about a few things. Uh, You're going to join us for the whole show, but we wanted to chat with you about science fiction, especially since you just published your first full book. My first science fiction novel came out in October, yeah. Tell us a little bit about it. 10,000 Thunders. uh, That's enough. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) That's a teaser teaser trailer. It's uh, it's far future science fiction, but it's um you know there's no faster than light travel. No, I try to keep the hand wavium uh, to a minimum. It's mostly about <laughs> it takes place in the far future where the population is divided between people who have access to godlike technology um, and uh. people who do not. People who are still mortal. People who are still susceptible to diseases and and um, it's it's basically it's the so patrician good. versus pleb divide on steroids. Uh, yeah. And the in four different characters um, from different strata of, uh, of of society get brought together to solve a mystery. Some people who are mortal, some people are immortal. Um, it's just a journey through a, a one possible vision of Earth. Uh, one, one critic mentioned the novel sits directly between utopia and dystopia. Oh, boy. Oh, nice. How could they even communicate? It'd be like me c- trying to have a, a Skype conference with bacteria. Well, well, immortality in this future has only been around for a couple hundred years, and so they and they haven't actually reached any singularity yet. I'm not really touching that on that in this book. It's more or less just, um, in a way, the people who live forever they've sort of collapsed into event horizons of their own self indulgence. Uh, So they haven't haven't advanced the way, um, well, in any kind of uh, you know godlike Jupiter brain type scenario. They're just God sitting up in Olympus, if you will. Well, so they're lucky humans, right? They they were able to use this technology, but they're not like super advanced, right? Right, exactly. They live in these protected enclaves. They if they die, in fact, the main character, the book's the book's opening line kind of sets the tone. Uh, Fourteen and a half hours after being killed in the shuttle explosion, Geth and Bryce found himself in a newly sculpted body, staring at his hands. So hmm. right, death, yeah. de- death just doesn't mean anything at all. Somebody can die, they can be brought back immediately. Um, wow. But uh, that does create a number of challenges. And so you have these four characters who are drawn into this global adventure. And um, that takes, cr- across, takes place not only across Earth, but in a way through time. It gets into Earth's history, um, certain shadowy chapters of it, and projects um, one possible scenario for where we may be headed. Oh, that is awesome. Well, you know, you, you should have started with it was a sultry night. <laughs> Too damn sultry. Remember that? One? That'll, be the, that'll be the second. That'll be the second book, Bob. I'll open it like just for you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, if you had to pick your favorite sci-fi novel, what would it be? Oh boy, hands down, Alfred Bester's *The Stars My Destination*. Yeah, that, that's my personal favorite. Uh, it was written, you know, published in the fifties and. Uh, 
it's still kind of ahead of its time. It's a very edgy, interesting proto cyberpunk work uh, that is uh, really stands stands apart. I always found it always made by jaw drop. It's the the ease at which he introduces this world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and uh, you know, floating uh, in orbit around there as well as Neuromancer by William Gibson. And uh, I always love Snow Crash by Neil Stevenson. Uh, Ender's Game by Orson Scott Carr. These are all very enjoyable books. But So I'm noticing those are all hard science. Yeah, I, 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 am, uh, I like fantasy, I guess, as much as anybody. But I, I particularly write sci- nuts and bolts science fiction. And I do like the rigor. I like the uh, rationale behind science fiction as opposed to just chalking it up yeah. to magic. How do you get good science into your science fiction where you're not just breaking the laws of physics every time you, you come up with something? Well, most of my, I'd say about uh, more than half of my stories take place in the same universe. And that's a universe where there is no FDL travel. There's not, none of that, none of those uh, tropes. So, um, like, boring. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just, just lost a fan. That's just too bad. Um, <laughs> well, in March, April of this year, um, my favorite story that I've written, An Incident on Ishtar, uh, was published in Analog. And that takes place um, in a Venusian aerostat colony. And there's actually a number of scientific papers written about how how Venus is a, a uh, viable colonization option. You know, Mars usually gets all the attention, but here are these aerostat colonies. Oxygen is a lifting gas on Venus and, you know, floating above at a certain... Yeah, dense certain, atmosphere, man. Super dense. Exactly. And floating, floating above the particularly... Uh, dangerous levels of the atmosphere is, um, you know, is actually viable. So I, my story takes place. Uh, it's a mystery that's set on an aerostat colony on Venus. Actually, in September, October, um, also in September, also in fantasy and science fiction, I had the Memory Box Vultures published, and that's about the future of social media. The idea that dead that the dead can continue posting on social media. That is, if you if you make enough online posts. Uh, upon death, say your Facebook posts, your tweets, all gets can, can optionally get uh, wrapped around a personality scaffold, and you can flag and tag the living. So, for example, if uh, Jay, you uh, depart us, and all of a sudden you set your uh, uh, dead posting to monitor Bob's activity, so Bob posts news of his engagement, you have already written something ahead of time that then reaches him. But it, it reaches a certain level of complexity where it almost starts to become a uh, an independent AI. Is, so it's like a bot, a smart bot. Like a very, just... very smart bot that, that arguably has a certain level of autonomy based on your history. The more posts you make, the more realistic it is Whoa. to your personality. But it's like a social media ghost of yeah. you that's just based on an algorithm of all the treat, the tweets or whatever that you've done over your life. Exactly. And, I, and the story picks up where there's this um, kind of a sadistic individual who just posts he's going to be running for Congress and someone from his past who's long dead is now starting to show some very incriminating videos of things he used to do. So, and it, so it's an interesting, it becomes a murder mystery. Um, it's kind of very film noir, but uh, a little, little uh, cyberpunkish as well. I mean, that is interesting. I mean, you might get to the point, there may be some people in your life that you have a virtual relationship with where you interact with them entirely online. And if their online presence continued, it almost would be like they didn't die. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It seems I, like, I mean, do, do you guys remember there was an early episode of Black Mirror where a girl brought back her boyfriend and it was actually a robot, yes, like it was yeah, a physical robot, yeah. but it, it seemed to use some sort of similar algorithmic 
Yeah. Um, you, you feed it all the information and it can exactly. Yeah. And, and, and it could almost like there, it was more just piecing together what he would say, but it is interesting. This idea that, yeah, it's, we, we've seen art, AI art that was mm-hmm. made from feeding in all of the great art of the masters. And it's almost indistinguishable. Right. Actually, I saw an interesting study done. This is several years ago where this AI counselor would just ask people would call in with, you know, their problems sitting on the virtual couch and uh, talking about their feelings. And um, it was very convincing. Of course, you know, most of the talk <laughs> is being done by the people doing the talk, but they, the AI counselor was able to pass um, with not a lot of, uh, not a lot of complexity. Because they just had to be empathically yeah, listening. Just be, just be an <laughs> yeah. ear. Exactly. I saw, yeah. that, I saw that decades ago when, when th- that was in its infancy and it was still kind of compelling if you could just basically spitting back questions and comments that they that they made to you. So it wasn't very sophisticated, but human psychology let that be something that, that seemed convincing to the, to the people that t- took yeah. part of the test. It just goes to show that we all have the same problems, right, when we go to a therapist. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, yeah, but... but in the initial phase, you were you just reflecting back and gathering information, sure. But once you get to the point where you have to synthesize what they're saying, it's very fragile. They, and you know, then it gets super complicated. We don't have any more importantly. Do that yet. Can that thing, Brian? Can it write prescriptions? <laughs> you know, I, I I'll have to consider that for the uh, for the sequel. It's actually a pretty popular sequel, story, yeah. so uh, <laughs> who knows? But uh, definitely, it can be hacked, and that's the uh, that's where it becomes mm. intriguing. Gosh, we need that unhackable technology at some point. Yeah. You know, any day now, Evan, any day. <laughs> I, I can't. Five to ten years, maybe. <laughs> unhackable technology is like the unsinkable ship, right? <laughs> exactly, right. It'll, it'll sink nice immediately. Thought, but bloop, yes. bloop, bloop, bloop. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> cool. Well, congratulations on Thank your you. book, Brian. And we have a lot of science to get to on this yeah, episode. Yeah, real science. That you're going <laughs> to discuss with us. <laughs> It's not all real science, but it's a lot of it is. But we're going to start. Kara, we haven't had a what's the word in a while, so give I us a what's know. the word. Okay, so this week the word was actually recommended by a new friend on Twitter, Dr. Jonathan Howard. He's at J Howard Brain MD on Twitter. He is also cool. a neurologist, Steve. Um, and he recommended the word philopatry. Philopatry. That's a fun word to say. P H I L. It's not philopatry. <laughs> that is not how anybody on the internet pronounces it. Love of Patry? Yeah. It's probably philopatry. Yes, is it Phil as in love? P H I L? So, yes, again, P H I L O P A T R Y. Is it Phil as in love? Actually, it is, Evan. So let's uh-huh. dive into this word. So, philopatric animals are those with a tendency to stay in one spot or, here's the real clincher, to return to a geographical area, often the place where they were born. Like sand oh, yes. eels. And Vulcans. I love that the two examples you guys came up with were actually marine or I should say um, uh, aquatic examples because the most common ones that I saw when I was digging deeply into this online, like papers that were published using the term as a, a, a key search word or in the title, were ornithology and mammalogy um, oh, papers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is apparently very common in certain species of birds and some species of mammals as well. But there you go. We're seeing it in aquatic animals um, like fish. It's also extremely common in college students. <laughs> <laughs> as you know, right now. <laughs> Yeah, and so I, I did come across a paper where the author wrote about two variants that have emerged, especially when talking about birds. They described natal philopatry 
and also breeding philopatry. So natal philopatry is a more specific um, description. This is when an animal returns to its birthplace to give birth itself. Um, breeding philopatry is going to the same breeding area each year, although that place is different from the place where that individual organism was born. So it's still this going back to the same spot, but it, it doesn't sort of harken all the way back to when they were born. So when you look at the word itself and you start to break it down, as Evan mentioned, philo, philo, this is a prefix that we see in a ton of science um, words. It means loving. It actually comes from the Greek philos, which means dear or beloved. Interestingly, my name also means dear or beloved in Italian, but it has a different origin. Got a mia. Dear mother of God. Yes, yes. Um, And then patri, the second uh, part of the word, comes from the Latin patria. And what does patria mean? Father. Right? It means father, but specifically in this term. Also home. It actually means, yes, home, the homeland, the fatherland. Oh, boy. So it's loving home. (laughs) Aww. <laughs> I'm glad you guys are enjoying yourself. <laughs> I like this one. I think it's, it's interesting. And you also sometimes yeah, see philopatry. Cool. Like, we see it a lot with breeding and birth because I think that's a commonly studied phenomenon. But we also see it sometimes with death. You'll see that animals will go back to an earlier place to die. What's that called? It's I, it's, I think it's the same phenomenon. It's just going. But I mean, is there what type of philopatry is that? Oh, probably. Maybe three. Than- Thano? Thanos? Thanos? Maybe. Thano is death, uh, but I'm not sure if that's... Are we I talking about actually... like where elephants go? To, like they go to a common area? That's different expire? though because that's they're not going right? back home. Well, but I mean, it may still refer to philopatry because it's inherent in the definition is not that it's going back to where one was born, but it's going quote unquote home, mostly just meaning that it's going to the same place over and over. So in essence, maybe, but I I don't know enough about the elephant um, graveyard rituals, but the elephants have been there before, right? As as far as I know, they they have been there before. Whereas some creatures, as my understanding that the Sargasso eels not only have they never been there before, but there's a couple generations removed. I think, I think it's uh, they somehow remember how to get back there. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that would be definitely a different phenomenon. Um, but in this case, it's going back to the same spot over and over. Like I said, either where the animal was first born, maybe the same part of a beach, or just a new breeding ground that they um, that they found during their life cycle. And a lot of times, the word phylopetry is actually um, used to show a distinction from dispersion. So some animals will disperse and some animals will stay in one place or some animals will disperse and never come back and other animals will go, but then they'll keep coming back to that same home. And that that's a Philopatric animal. Fascinating. Yeah. All right. I'm going to start off the news items. Have you guys heard of release active drugs? Absolutely. This is crazy. Release active. Uh, what does talk that mean? About a re- active yeah. release? This is, a, this is a big retread, guys. Yeah. So Release active drugs is basically homeopathy, oh. but with a newfangled, you know, patina. I <laughs> yeah. like that word, patina yeah. of technobabble jargon laid on top, specifically to deceive the consumer oh. about its nature. Yeah, that never happens. Okay. Like intelligent yeah. design over creationism. Yes, yeah. this is. Yeah, so yeah, release active drugs is the intelligent design of homeopathy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> It's the artesian, Steve. Artesian. 
Artesian homeopathy. <laughs> so I actually uh, heard about this from Alexander Panchin, who is the uh, co-author of a new BMJ article about release active drugs. He is – we've spoken about him before because he is a member of the Russian Academy of Sciences and was part of the team that did sort of an expose on homeopathy in Russia. And now uh, he's doing more good work by following up with, with this um, – co-authoring this article on release active drugs. So he did a review of what it is, what's the history, what's the evidence. Uh, it all comes from a single Russian company. The name of the company is OOO NPF Materia Medica Holding. It's like a really bizarre name. Who knows it? Although Materia Medica is like – that's a clue. That's a homeopathy you know, Bible. Um, uh, yeah. If you if you happen to know that sort of thing, I don't know what the yeah, the ooh NPF <laughs> Materia Medical whatever MMH for short. So uh, MMH has been around for a number of years. Um, its CEO is Oleg Epstein, and this guy has been flooding the literature with crappy studies supporting his products. Right. So he, he you know, uh, edited it. A, an entire issue of a journal full of his own studies. What journal? He's a co- That's unbiased, right? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Because it's, it's all in Russian. You know uh, what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Yikes. Uh, but he has been starting to get some of his studies into English-speaking journals, uh-huh. right, on PubMed and other, <gasps> and other ones. Oh, so there was gosh. one article, for example, was about – this is like a very typical one – looking at a drug, uh, diclofenac, which is an anti-inflammatory. It's an aspirin-like drug, right? And looking at its anti-inflammatory activity. And they compare two doses of diclofenac with diclofenac plus this release-active drug of diclofenac at two doses. And then with diclofenac and and by itself, right? So it's like five different – then and compared to placebo. So it's like six, you know, comparison groups. Most of the data looks like what you would expect it, expect it to look like if the release active drug of diclofenac had zero effect, right? The diclofenac works as a dose response curve, the and the release active drug by itself doesn't work. But they managed to squeeze out barely significant differences in the when you add the the RAD, the release active drug, to the diclofenac itself. So. Can you tell me one more time, just so that I'm fully clear, what is in this thing? Is it nothing? Is it water? Nothing. It's nothing. Okay. Right. So they uh, they do they they do dilutions. Okay. Um, and it, yeah, they do homeopathic dilutions, and then they shake it in between. Huh. They do like the one to one serial one to one hundred dilutions. Yeah. So for one specific Steve, product, when do they do the hokey pokey though? <laughs> they, they shake it all around. And guys. then you have to yeah. turn yourself around. Yeah, it's all part but of the ritual. That's the thing and that I always struggle with. I'm like, is this real homeopathy? Which is the dumbest thing to have to ask. But as we know, you know, real homeopathy is not real. It's fake and it's nothing. But there's fake homeopathy, which is actually got active ingredient in it, which is actually dangerous. <laughs> which, they, which they only call homeopathic for marketing purposes. Exactly. So it's all very yeah. confusing. Well, this is, they're not calling it homeopathy for marketing purposes. <laughs> this time. So, yeah. like for one particular product, uh, anaferon, which is a homeopathic dilution of antibodies, the authors calculated that they, but on average, you would expect there to be one molecule, right? One antibody in every 100 million pills. Mm. Right? So uh, that's a, that's a t- typical extreme. Worse, worse than random contamination. I mean, more extreme than that. 
And they write, get this, they write, from personal communications, we are aware of patients who knew about the scientific criticism of homeopathy and wanted to avoid any alternative medicine, but were still tricked by the misleading descriptions of release active products, which are sold over the counter in multiple countries. So some of the products were initially labeled homeopathic, then the homeopathic label disappeared from those labels, and they just replaced it with all this deliberately confusing jargon so you don't know what's, what's actually happening unless you read very, very carefully. Is it in Gosh. the U.S.? Uh, no, this is Russian. It's this is only, Russian. Well, because it said multiple countries. I wasn't sure. Multiple countries, yeah, in the, in the, in the East, like okay. like former Eastern Bloc countries, right? So they're trying – however, this is why they're now pushing it into, into low-rent you know, English-speaking journals. They're paving the way to, to break into the American and the European markets, which they haven't done yet, but that's – that's what's going to happen. Um, it'd be interesting to see how it gets dealt with in the U.S. because it might be required to have the homeopathy label in the U.S. because of the FDA and FTC regulations, you know. Mm. But they might not care because they're making millions of dollars selling magic water that has no active ingredient left or negligible active ingredient. Well, fortunately, there's no chance at all that something like that would ever take hold and convince people in this country. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Now we're impervious to that kind of flim flam. (laughs) No, it is still amazing, you know, that homeopathy continues to exist in the 21st century. It is magic water. You know, you you dilute out any active ingredient, and the idea is that the essence is left behind, or that water molecules somehow remember these far more complicated molecules. And not only do they remember it, but when you they remember it while you you drop them onto sugar pills, and then you eat it, and then it gets digested and it gets absorbed into your bloodstream, and it finds its way to. (laughs) And throughout all of this, the water is keeping itself in with the magic structure necessary to to remember whatever was diluted in it. It makes absolutely no sense. And it forgets all the other nasty things that it was with too, like poop. Right. Right. (laughs) So, and, you know, not for nothing, it's been studied extensively and multiple, multiple reviews, systematic reviews of clinical trials of homeopathic products show that homeopathy works for nothing. So it doesn't work. It can't possibly work. It's magic. It's utter nonsense. How can this possibly still exist? Mainly through, through a couple of things. One is, People don't know what it is, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. and, and, and and that's what they're tra- – now they're like trying to take that one step further to hide even more what homeopathy really is by calling it something else entirely. You know, most people think that it's like herbs or natural treatments or whatever. They don't realize that it's magic water. But also regulations, you know, they, they, there are regulations which give it a pass, you know, like – Say, okay, yeah, you know, you could be on the market, you can make these pseudo claims. The FDA and FTC have sort of crack, quote unquote cracked down on homeopathy, but it's just adding a little bit more transparency to the labeling. But honestly, the only rational regulation is this is fraud. There's no reason why this should be on the market at all. Right. Mm-hmm. And if it's fraud, you know? it should be a crime. Right. Oh, good In point. In my yeah. opinion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. it's it's How could you think of this as anything other than fraud? And of course, the third thing is just motivated reasoning. Yeah. People will believe in magic and will find a way to convince themselves that it's reasonable. But I think that's a very small number of people. Like, like know fully what homeopathy is. Like, yeah, that works. No, I don't think so. No, yeah. I think that even before I joined you guys, when did I start working with the SGU? 2015. 2015. 
I was always a skeptical thinker because I was a scientific thinker. And of course, I didn't buy into Wu. But I don't think I knew that that was the actual story behind homeopathy either. I just always lumped it in with all the natural alternative wooey projects. Like I figured it was herbs or just something that was fake. But once I really learned about you know, the whole ritual of like water having a memory and realizing that it had zero active ingredient by definition. I was like, wow, I can't believe that this is available for sale in my pharmacy. Yeah. I think uh, also Kara's point, uh, people Mm -hmm. who I run into who, you know, are on the fence about homeopathy or I'm sorry, not homeopathy, uh, you know, release active drugs um, that they, uh, (laughs) They, uh, they do lump it in with the herbs and then, oh, it's just natural. It's this, it's that. I don't mm-hmm. think they realize the whole water shape. I haven't met anybody, um, you know, pedestrian wise who understands that it's the whole magic water shaking a few times. Yeah, that's right. And when I explain that to some people, often they don't believe. Yeah, me. they're like, mm, I don't <laughs> know. Is. And then yeah. I'm like, okay, take. Some say, no, it's this. that's right. It can't, it can't be, be that. I'm like, don't trust me. Look it yeah, up. Yeah, go Google it. Look it up. Yep. Wait, Google it. You don't say. Do you know who I am? <laughs> are you talking to me i don't know um, if, has that yeah. saying ever worked ever do you know who i am yeah like i don't think it ever worked in the history it only makes people kind. hate you yeah <laughs> jay i think jay i think it's worked a lot you, you never you don't think a mob guy never said do you know who i am and that's the last thing that guy heard <laughs> yeah if you're if you're about to mug a mob boss and he goes do you know who i am you might want to listen <laughs> At that point. I, I, but he could be bluffing. Could be some ordinary guy who's bluffing. You never I still that. doubt it ever happened. Yeah, maybe. All right, let's move on. Evan, you're going to give us a quick update on the Voyager 2. Yes. Where has it been? What's it been doing? Oh, my gosh. Has it been busy? Hurtling <laughs> along <laughs> at ridiculous speeds into the depths of space. And it has finally officially, according to NASA, moved into interspace. Stellar space. Oh, yeah. Officially announced by NASA this past Monday, Voyager 2 has finally crossed over into interstellar space. But when, when we, we most recently talked about Voyager 2 last summer, when we were celebrating the 40th anniversary of the launching of both Voyager 1 and Voyager 2, and when we spoke about it, we noted to our audience that Voyager 2 is still very much alive, very much intact, and still performing science. Now, it may take about 16 hours or so for the data to reach us at near the speed of light, but that's okay. You know, not bad for 11 billion miles from Earth. <laughs> Isn't it at the speed of light? Because it's radio waves. Radio waves is light. I thought it was a f- super uper duper f- tenth unth of a fraction less than speed of light. But no, uh, it's, hmm. it, no, no okay. it's light. Okay, it's so by we, definition light, so it's at the speed of light, we'll ra- just to be clear. So we'll round that up and we'll call it the speed <laughs> of light. 16 hours to reach us, 11 degrees. Energy has to move at the speed of light, you know, yeah. in whatever medium it's in. It's, There's yeah, no it doesn't option. have much choice. So, yeah, so when you say like in science fiction where the, he's an energy being, well, yeah, you wouldn't be sticking around too long in one place because you'd be <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'd exactly be interacting with it that way. It's homeopathic energy bot. <laughs> so just to put it into perspective now, this is this is Voyager 2. This is the uh, Voyager that did the grand tour of the outer solar system, uh, you know, uh, Jupiter, yep. Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, uh, not Pluto, of course. But uh, And so that's why it was a, a kind of a little bit delayed, I think, from uh, the Voyager 1, which went, uh, exited the, the solar system, the, the heliosphere in 2012. So basically what, what, what Voyager 2 did was it passed the heliopause. Which is the the outer mm-hmm. outermost layer of the heliosphere, where this, this where our sun holds sway at least gravi- um, 
through its uh, solar wind and magnetic fields. Uh, so beyond that, so within the heliosphere, it's mostly sun stuff, but outside the heliosphere, past the heliopause, it's mostly interstellar stuff. That's that's kind of that's one way to think of the demarcation between the two. Right. But it's still in the solar system oh, because yes. it hasn't. It's not going to get to the Oort cloud for a while. Right? Yeah, that's oh, true. Yeah, I think I misspoke. Years. Heliosphere is it, that's that's uh, that that's what it passed. It, it's still technically yeah. in the solar system. Um. So, Evan, what is still functional on this thing? I know between Voyager one and Voyager two, like most everything is not working anymore. But it seems like Voyager two is actually sending back m- more data. Voyager one is basically like a space rock now. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Essentially, right. That's correct. And when Voyager one did leave the, past the same mark that Voyager two has just passed by, Voyager, um, a lot of systems on Voyager one w- was not working. Among them, the Plasma Science Experiment, or PLS, they call it. Uh, but on Voyager two, it is working, and they were able mm. to measure the transition by a sharp decline in the number of charged particles detected by the PLS. Right. And that is when they called it. They said on November 5th, it was no longer picking up the uh, solar particles right. that is otherwise cool. meant cool. to detect. And yeah. we're still getting that data. It's so great. It's uh, awesome. You know, it's it's definitely my favorite space, spacecraft, years. I think, of all spacecraft. It's got to be Voyager yeah. 2. Yeah. Yep. And eventually it'll become sentient and then come after. Uh, does it have <laughs> I know, right? Feature. 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 Does it have all the same cool stuff that Voyager 1 has on it? I, there's just so yeah. much. It does. Like, they just they duplicated everything. Identical. Okay. Cool. Yeah. Very yeah. cool. And uh, Voyager 2 will see its day. It will die eventually, but it still uh, has a lot more energy to. Uh, to burn, essentially, and they think that uh, Voyager 2 is currently operating in temperatures just about 38.5 degrees, but it is, but it does experience a gradual loss of heat and power, uh, drops about 4 watts each year, they estimate. So if you do the long math on that, mm-hmm. it still has a long way to go, but uh, it will eventually be just a cold nothing someday. But not yet. We're still learning, and I love it. Very cool. Awesome. Good talking. All right, Bob, we got another... Astronomy item: fast radio bursts. How fast? Very fast. Um, <laughs> we've talked about these a few times before on the show, but there's a new paper that has an interesting hypothesis. Yeah, it's funny. I was making this poking fun at Brian, saying that yeah, let's talk about science, but this is actually a little bit less science and a little bit more speculation, which is kind of the point of the whole thing. Came across this interesting paper recently uh, that speculates that fast radio bursts are not necessarily caused by some uh, obscure cataclysmic natural phenomenon, but just might be evidence of amazingly advanced alien technology, uh, such as a transmitter the size of a planet that pushes spacecraft spacecraft close to the speed of light. Uh, so that's what they're they're talking about. What? Uh, so I, yeah, this is this is fun speculation. Um, <laughs> you know, no, you could fun. say I, I, I know this seems like pure speculation, but I would argue that it's more uh, erudite speculation informed Ooh. by science. Um, and it's just it's just a fun thing. Um, we yeah, Steve, you're right. We have talked about fast radio bursts. A quick overview: uh, they're extremely intense, very intense millisecond bursts of radio waves from deep space, extragalactic. Discovered in 2007, they, we found um, on, on the order of dozens of these signals. Uh, they seem random, um, and there was no consensus what's causing them. So it's a bit, one of the biggest recent mysteries in uh, in astrophysics. But then in 2000, in 2015, they found 11 uh, of these bursts from the same area of space, and they were repeating 
which kind of, which seemed to obviate the possibility that these were these one-time cataclysms, something on the order of colliding black holes or something like that. So this presumably, I guess, led uh, uh, Avi Loeb and uh, and Manasvi Lingam uh, from the Harvard Smithsonian Center to propose a potential artificial origin for the FRBs. So uh, the idea essentially is that we they're, that uh, they're hypothesizing a solar-powered radio transmitter. Um, used on, on gargantuan light sails in what they refer to as photonic propulsion system, which I guess oh, yeah. is pretty accurate. Um, we talked about that recently too. Right. Uh, but this is on a, you know, this is on an alien technology scale. Um, and uh, they use those energies supposedly, uh, to accelerate spaceships close to the speed of light, as you know, would require, I mean, anytime, anytime you're pushing atoms, Close to the speed of light, the energy required is gargantuan. So the scientists say that it could be powered by a star. Um, it probably, you know, they, they focus on star powered, um, but it could be some other alien tech, like maybe a quantum implosion turbo encabulator. Um, yeah, that's always possible. A, a possibility. That, uh, that yes, that does not exist. Um, <laughs> um, yes, it does. You can of, look it up on YouTube. <laughs> right, right. So, regardless, based on the radio energy that's reaching the Earth and the distance it's traveled, the transmitter, and this is where the science comes in, and the, the calculations that the transmitter would have to be truly something Brobdingnagian. Uh, perhaps something as big as two. What the hell does that mean? Two, come on. Oliver Travels. Yeah, nice, come on. Reference. So, um, nice reference. Nice reference. Perhaps as big as two Earth diameters. So this this is huge. What's, your, what's your, the diameter of the Earth? Is it 8,000 miles, right? So it's 16,000 diameter. So that's the kind of surface area we're talking about. So their idea is that the light, all you would need is the light falling on such a planet would be enough to power such a device. Um, so you might think, well, you know, how much could that be? Well, it's a lot. First off, each hour on the Earth, there's 430 quintillion joules of energy hitting the Earth from the sun. Uh, that's 400, that's 430 with 18 zeros after it. So yeah, quintillion is a huge number. Now, if you have, t- if you're on a planet that's twice the diameter of the Earth, that's four times the surface area. So we're talking about something like 1.7 sextillion joules of energy per hour landing on that, on half of that planet. So yeah, that, that if you could utilize a significant fraction of that energy, um, it, you could power something like this, something, something that could power a light sail at near the speed of light and the leftover incidental energy that, that escapes, uh, could still hit the earth millions of light years away. So, so that's what they're talking about there. Uh, but it doesn't even have to be a planet. It doesn't have to be a planet shaped object. They say that it could be uh, more like a Dyson sphere. Now, I thought Dyson spheres were pretty much passe in terms of uh, an entire sphere surrounding a, a star to absorb all its energy. I, I think the consensus is that that would just be way too unstable, and people refer to it more nowadays more of like a Dyson uh, swarm. So you'd have a swarm of these platforms absorbing energy, but not completely, you know, not unified and, and you know, and around the entirety of the star. Um, but whatever. Um, so, uh, but now for a little, you know, come down to earth a little bit here on this. Uh, I think the researchers would agree with Roger Romani, who's a professor of physics at Stanford University, when he said this. I don't think that more prosaic astrophysical origins should yet be eliminated. Well, yeah. Most would concur that exotic but astrophysical events likely cause um, these fast radio bursts. So I would not sign up for the alien interpretation at this juncture. That being said, this sort of informed speculation is good fun as long as one retains appropriate skepticism. So that kind of sums it up nicely, I think. Informed speculation is good fun, but just 
you know, stay skeptical. But I still think the return on investment on this type of speculation would be tremendous. I mean, imagine, you know, if they were really looking at this and they found solid evidence that this that this was alien tech, um, that would be amazing. But what would that look like? So the, right. we've talked about this before, the fact that every time tabby there's some star, unknown like astronomical star, phenomenon, yeah. someone finds a way to argue that it's that it's alien tech. It's yeah, right. yeah, so far it's never been. Or just the asteroid flying through the uni- the solar system, you know, the 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 extra extra solar asteroid that we talked about a few weeks ago. Yeah, it's just it's worthless at this point. But other than just being fun, it's like the the most you can say about it. But unless you can generate from that a testable hypothesis, exactly. And wh- I I came up with one. You look at the you look at the areas. Uh, the, the galaxies, I think there was, these were dwarf galaxies that yeah. had the repeat, that had the repeaters. You look for s- s- evidence of Dyson swarms. If you look, if you find stars that are emitting in infrared, uh, hugely in the infrared, but not nearly as much as they should in more visible, you know, in say invisible wavelength, wavelengths or other wavelengths, that would be evidence that there's some sort of Dyson sphere there that, which, which that alone would be evidence of alien tech, but would also tend to support this idea, you know, of, of harnessing energy from a star t- to, uh, to power these transmitters. As you say, that would be evidence in and of itself of alien right. tech. And so and it's I, redundant to say that that's I, evidence of this other alien tech. Right. And I, but I'd be happy with that. But, but yeah, you're right. They should come up with, uh, with ways. And, and, you know, we're coming up with, uh, you know, increasingly better observatories uh, of the, of the, uh, of the night sky. And they're, they're coming up with ideas with methods now that could, that could find lots of FRBs um, because we're, yeah. we've only seen a small slice of these of these uh, these events. It, some people estimate that if you extrapolate from the thin slices of sky that we've examined and found them, that they, there would be FRBs happening every day. Um, and that would yeah. I think that what I think would tend to go against this hypothesis because so what does that mean that there's in- alien intelligences all around the universe using similar technology to transport maybe that's a natural thing to technologically evolve into but i think that would kind of weaken the argument that if, yeah. if they're all over the place and that would support the more natural physical right. event if it were clustering like oh this galaxy has which is an right. otherwise looks like a normal galaxy but is having a lot of these frbs right. you could say maybe there's a civilization in that galaxy producing it but yeah right. if it's scattered all over i think that argues against it being so, yeah, so tech. It's, I mean, I'm sure that you can come up with lots of other tests too, but I still think this is a worthy speculation. Um, just for, like I said, for the fun, but the return on investment would be yeah, epic. Yeah. It'll it'll keep happening, but it's yeah, it's not a, a really like serious hypothesis until you can come up no. with a way to <laughs> test it. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, the Great Courses Plus. Guys, one of the things that we love to do as skeptics is what we love to learn. We love to challenge our existing beliefs, and the best way to do that is to educate yourself. Edumacate yourself, please. (laughs) How do I do that, Jay? You can do that, Kara, every day from any device with the Great Courses Plus. They've got unlimited access to stream thousands of lectures and learn about basically anything that we're interested in. Astronomy, physics, history, science, other kinds of science, psychology, card tricks. Whoa, card tricks? That's awesome. This week we are recommending that you check out Higgs Boson and Beyond by, of course, the physics professor, Sean Carroll. He is my go-to physics guy now. He's such an amazing writer and it's such a great combination of of being not only incredibly knowledgeable and and crazy smart, but being able to verbalize that and talk about it in a way that makes it interesting and fascinating and accessible to pretty much anybody, including your grandmother. 
We want SGU listeners to discover the Great Courses Plus right now, and you can start listening to it for free. For a limited time only, you can get a free month of unlimited access when you sign up through thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. So start your free month trial today only at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Brian, sticking with the astronomy theme, yeah, you're going to tell us about China's recent moon mission. Yeah, this no is moon. very fascinating. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in this case, uh, yeah, this Saturday, uh, China launched its uh, Chang'e 4 mission to the moon. Um, and actually, just a few hours ago, it came into lunar orbit formally. Uh, wow. It's supposed to touch down. They're not sure when exactly, but they're predicting close to New Year's. Uh, and I should add that this is not just any lunar soil either. This is, in fact, a history-making journey to the far side of the moon. Um, the uh, mission launched on a Long March 3B rocket from Xichang Launch Center. So this will be a global first um, and China's second overall moon mission. The first was uh, Jade Rabbit back in 2013. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So and this and this makes sense since, uh, according to Chinese folklore, there's two permanent residents on the moon. One being Chang'e and the other being uh, her uh, little jade rabbit. And they're about to become real. Uh, the landing site is expected to be the Aitken Basin in the lunar polar south. It's kind of a uh, kind of a lunar Emin wheel. With, uh, it's very craggy and twisting terrain, uh, so it's going to be challenging to touch down there. That's a Lord of the Rings reference. Yes, uh, I, gotcha. I could, thank you, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, awesome. I couldn't help it. Just couldn't. <laughs> uh, I love it. What's um, What's interesting is that uh, you know, to me, in all these decades since the first moon landing, we've never sent anything to touch down on the far side, and um, not just a matter of being out of visibility for Earth's surface dwellers, but you know, the far side of the moon is very distinct in appearance and terrain. Uh, it's mountainous. It's rugged. Um, you know, it's going to be a challenge, as I said, for the, for the rover to touch down. And that's not even getting into the technological hurdles of trying to communicate with something that is on the far side of a tightly locked mm-hmm. satellite like the moon. So what uh, what China did is their solution was to launch a relay satellite. It's called Magpie Bridge. And they're using that to relay commands and to receive uh, data. It's fascinating and a little upsetting in a way that it's taken this long for us to – the moon is there, right? I mean, it's this long to actually look at this uh, unexplored region um, up close. Uh, in addition to, um, you know, to visible uh, – to, to actually, you know, taking a look at the terrain itself, they're going to be conducting a variety of experiments. Uh, some of them are low-frequency astronomical studies, mineral tests radiation tests. They're going to be conducting experiments with potatoes and seeds. And get this, Bob, you're going to like this, uh, reportedly silkworm eggs. So anyone scoffing at the new Godzilla movie cast of kaiju characters will at least have a solid Um. hypothesis of where a silk spewing (laughs) mothra-like creature could have come from. So it it turns out that Godzilla came from the dark side of the moon the whole time. The whole, the whole time. This, that's the spo- spoiler alert, Jay. You have to say spoiler. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Brian, did you read? Are they collecting any moon rocks or anything like that? Or is it really they're just sending a device there? Um, actually, I know that there's going to be a series. They're already planning a Chang'e 5 mission. Um, I don't know if this mission is supposed to be collecting the moon rocks, but I have to believe they're sending a rover down there. I think that is one of them. But the, the focus mostly was on um, localized experiments. So- 
I have a friend who's a planetary scientist and she was like doing a big um, Instagram kind of storm about this mission. And when we were at dinner the other day, I called it the dark side of the moon like you just did, Jay. And she was like, we call it the far side of the moon. It's like, oh, I stand corrected. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> Oh yeah, well, I call science it the fiction. Out. Oh, absolutely, okay. the lights out exactly. <laughs> so it's the, it's the uh, right. It's the um, far side cartoon side of the moon. So mm-hmm, exactly, <laughs> uh, uh, Brian. Just for clarification, so I'm reading that the Chang'e Five will be the first sample return mission. That's so this will not have, Okay, that's why. Yeah, this will, this does not have any sample return. Okay. Yeah. I do. I like the fact that still space exploration always has like an international flavor to it, right? Even though this is China's mission, there's two German experiments on it. You know what I mean? We still have the International Space Station where the Russians take us up to a station that has, you know, people from different countries. I really hope that as we continue to branch out into space, that we really, really keep the international vibe going. You know what I mean? I think Rather than having to. it be, yeah, I wouldn't want to see it devolve into like competition between nations. We really should be doing it cooperatively. And we have a lot of, and we have a lot of treaties, uh, to that effect in that there's going to be no claim of ownership by any country to anything beyond the beyond the earth's yeah. surface and, right. and we need to keep that up when we planted like, the, the flag on the moon we didn't claim it for america that? right Correct. Yeah. <laughs> no, we, we didn't actually there we, was, was no that. competition there not at all <laughs> yeah. i mean there was well yeah I mean, obviously that was massive competition but we didn't we don't claim the moon as our own we just planted our flag there to say we, we were, were there. we visited yeah well and it. the truth of the matter is during that time right during the cold war like this was a a an example maybe i could say it was a it was something to rally behind for the public both of america and russia but what you're talking about steve you're right could potentially become the catalyst for more um tribalism for potential war yeah we're already talking about having a space force like it's scary right a lot of those um those treaties could be undone like we just need to maintain a sense of, yeah, camaraderie across the globe because the tech is getting cheaper. Like places that couldn't afford to have space programs before have them now. And they're, it's going to continue. Yeah, it could go one of two ways. You could see it you know, ramping up um, competition between nations and conflict or cooperation, mm-hmm. you know? They'll yeah. just take the uh, fight out into space. Well, I hope <laughs> not. I hope not. It doesn't have to be that way. It does not have to I be I totally that way. agree, okay. but, you know, we got to be realistic here. Well, I certainly, Steve, I certainly agree with you that that should be the, it definitely it, it should be the galvanizing force. I mean, you, it's beyond tribal na- tribal lines. It should be all working together towards a goal like this. So fortunately, I am not anywhere near being a you know, total misanthrope. So I, I'm sure you're going to be right. <laughs> well, listen, the thing is, you know, I kind of reject the argument that you have to be re- quote unquote realistic because I think, honestly, Jay, that's a bad argument. Um, this is, let me, let me give you an example from fantasy, the speculative fiction, right? So like the people in the Game of Thrones world think that that's just how the world is and you have to be brutal because, you know, that's being realistic for them. But the world is only that way because the people in the world think it's that way. Mm-hmm. They make it that way. And so, it, you know, you're saying well, we have to be realistic. Well, no. The realistic is the, space exploration will be whatever we make it. 
And if we make it a competition, it'll be a competition. If we make it a collaboration, the you know, hope for humanity as a whole, where the whole world is our tribe, because that's really the kind of the perspective that you get out in space. If we if we try to nurture that, then that's what our future will be. That will be realistic. It doesn't have to be anything. It'll be whatever we make it out to be. Yeah, but ba- based on precedent right now, I think I'm, yeah. I'm hopeful. I mean, if you look at at uh, Russians and uh, Americans and other and other nationalities working together on this international space station, they, are, from what I've read, they yeah, we're off to a good start. Literally, like, like the only you know diplomacy that That's, works for us. It's kind yeah, of the yeah. last bastion, and we right. have to maintain right. that. And 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 the, yeah, and the ISS itself is would not be there if it weren't for an international effort. And I think any huge efforts on the moon are also probably going to require huge multinational efforts. So yeah, so I'm hopeful. Well, don't level all that. sorts of charges at me. All I was saying. Optimist like you guys are, even though I'm actually a nihilist at my core, but I'm still optimistic <laughs> with the time that I have. And I, you know, you guys, the space, outer space exploration, that's my bag, baby. You know, like I love that. <laughs> I am so into that. So, yes, I'm totally all about, you know, what you're saying, Steve. I just also, you know, I guess I was like reminiscing about recent politics that have yeah. been bothering me. Yeah, but I, I do think we should, we should not succumb to. You know the nihilism of recent political realities. Yeah. It, again, we can we can survive this and those ebb and flow. No, yep. Yeah. yep, yep, ebb and flow. This too shall pass. Yes, yes. All right, Jay, tell us about the chicken scene. You know, I've done a lot of news articles on this show. I've researched a lot. This one is just downright weird. <laughs> well, what's wrong with listen to this? This chicken is this is legit too. This is all legit science. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think this is like the dark mirror of our actual reality. So you know meat chickens? You know, a rotisserie meat chicken? Meat chicken? Yeah. That's what they call <laughs> as, a, as opposed to sinew chickens? Yeah, those veggie or... chickens are horrible. <laughs> those tofurkeys. They're, Look, uh... people in the industry, guys, they call them meat chickens. Well, they're yeah, chickens there are chickens that, right. that we don't slaughter for food. Yeah. Right, and others lay yeah. eggs or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Right. Oh, that makes sense now. There's yeah. egg chickens and then there's decorative chickens. <laughs> And do you know how we call the different the different epochs different names like right yes. right now we're in the Anthropocene? Yeah, but that's right? like not the actual name. That's a yeah. That's the that's the the common person's name, right? Kevin? Yeah, but are we in the what are we in the Holocene? Yeah, technically, I think we are. Yeah, I think it's the Holocene. Yeah, it's the present. Yeah, we're in the Holocene. All right, so this this epoch <laughs> that we're in this this collection of years that we're currently in this is the the epoch where when we analyze the history of the planet, this is the one where human activity made itself so obvious that it has it's had such an impact on the earth and on the animals on the planet and on the and the the, uh, the actual agriculture on the planet and you know everything the fauna and flora on the planet that there it's defined by human activity and the changes that we're making right and more specifically, Jay, the fossils we are leaving. But what does this have to do with chickens? <laughs> what does it have to do with chickens? It has everything to do with chickens. Listen, so so Dr. Bennett, he's the honorary fellow at the University of Leicester, said, as the most numerous terrestrial vertebrate species on the planet with a biology shaped by humans, modern chickens are a symbol of our changed biosphere. Wow. Guys, there are chickens. approximately... I know, chicken. There are approximately... <laughs> 23 billion chickens at any given time in the world. Oh, my gosh. Living chickens? Alive? Or does that include the yeah. frozen chickens and the fresh chickens? 
I think it includes, well, no, it has to be at any given time. There's 23 billion alive because we are mm. constantly growing them. They have a six week life cycle, by the way, the ones that you oh, buy, the little really? roasters. I know, I didn't think it was that short. Wow. Um, so, I mean, to add some exclamation points to this, we have selectively bred these meat chickens so much in the last 70 years that mm. they are phenomenally different, dramatically different than what we started with 70 years ago. Yeah, they're and, delicious. Uh, a yeah. lot of vegetables and, and animals. I mean, we've, we've reconfigured our planet, uh, our planet's biosphere. You wouldn't recognize the original carrot, right? Absolutely not. Right. No, I mean, it was yeah. like a little shriveled up white Queen Anne's lace looking type of root. And, you know, we made modern carrots out of it. I, and I read the whole history of carrots. But that's another story because carrots and chicken go together. Everybody knows that. Oh, my gosh. Chicken <laughs> soup is so good. You can't have chicken soup without oh. Fresh or chicken pot pie, which I've yes. had three meals in a row. Oh, God. So, I don't so put carrots good. in my chicken pot pie. <gasps> I hate cooked carrots. <gasps> I love carrots. We'll I think talk. they're gross when they're cooked. We'll cooked. talk. I know. I know. But that's not really the point of this article, is it? That chickens are really different. It's one the half of, the of it. That there's it's one so half many. The other oh, half okay. is that there's so many, yeah. It's, okay. It's, yeah, but they do million. emphasize that the bones are different and they'll gotcha. stand out from the fossil record. Mm -hmm. That's the idea that, you know, a million years from now, science is looking back. That's like the Anthropocene is the the speculative epic that future mm -hmm. scientists will look back on and call our current time, even though it's right. technically the Holocene. And the idea is what, what, what will we leave behind that will define our era? We talked about it being the age of plastic, right? That the yeah. layer of plastic will define the Anthropocene. Oh but these guys are saying, nope. no, it'll be chickens. This is a, yeah, this yeah. a massive I think it's number be of chickens. Both. Uh, yeah, it's, I just, it's right. <laughs> right. Go back, go back to that. your kids if you ever had kids. Go back to their like fossil books, the science books that you read. Them. My my kids have these books where you, they'll show you like you know at this level underground you find these types of fossils and these types of fossils. So a few hundred years from now or a thousand years from now, somebody somebody will be reading their child one of these books and there'll be a layer of chickens. In the mm -hmm. in the epic that we live in, literally, that's that. Are, those are the bones that they're going to find. Well, Look, especially the if we, bones. especially if we kind of culturally shift gears to the point where we go more and more vegetarian, more and more vegan. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, that's still going to be happening within several hundred years. Or if we have the uh, you know the lab grown meat too, and move beyond it that way. Exactly. Uh, I did. I was in um, Puerto Rico a couple of years ago for a conference and I found a little bone when I was on the beach and I was like so excited about it. It was all desiccated and cool and light. And I was like, what bird is this cool bone from? And people were like, yeah, that was probably from a bucket of chicken. Go find the colonel to confirm that. <laughs> My takeaway from that thing that you just said is that you're, you're one hell of a cool person. <laughs> Because I know exactly what you're talking about. If I found a cool bone on the beach, I would be like, oh, my God, this is awesome. Check this. I'd be like you know, running around showing people. Yeah. Starting so to name your find. I put it yeah. up on social media and like all the responses were like, yeah, that's a chicken. <laughs> I told you about the time. I told you guys about the time I found a bone in my mother-in-law's backyard. And then it turned out that I found the remains of her dog that died like 15 years earlier. I, I found all the bones eventually and pieced them together and identified it as a dog. <laughs> and, 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 you didn't just use some context. You handed it to uh, yeah, her. After she, the, I gave it back go. to her. She buried found it. Found your dog. I did. She, she, she was very happy. You unburied wow. it. She buried it. 
No, it was on the surface. She, the dog just wandered away and died, and she never knew what happened to it. She, she knew it died, but she never found it. And, and, oh, and it wasn't actually buried. No, 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 no. It was okay, on the, laying on the surface, laying on the surface on the side of the hill, just under the brush, under the rubble. And you know, I just saw a vertebra. Huh. I'm like, oh, it's a vertebra. Then I thought, I didn't know. I thought it was a wild animal that died there. But once I got cool. the skull and everything, I looked it up. It's like, yeah, that's a dog. And then she's like, oh, crap, that's my dog that died. <laughs> oh, Frankie. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's Frankie, Jay. So, Jay, I, I, think, I think the real question about your, your article is like, I mean, oh, yeah. in, a, in a million years, you know, would they, could you look back and say, yeah, these chickens, something was definitely They took over the world. Yeah. It was, it's clearly the result of artificial selection. And um, I don't know how much I buy that. I mean, I mean, I, I think there's lots of reasons why we are in in a, in a unique period in terms of of humans leaving traces of themselves, like uh, things that are rare in nature, like aluminum. Right? They're going to see what man. How how come there's all these collections of aluminum in one place? Somebody must have been using this stuff. Or how about computer so I, chips? I don't know what the, what they're going to be like in a million years, but other things include unknown thing unknown naturally, like molybdenum. Molybdenum that's not natural. That's something that would have to be put together and created. Or well, and you mentioned Steve plastic, yeah. Yeah. or something entirely novel like plastic. So those are the things that I think are going to define. Bob, uh, just to be clear, molybdenum molybdenum is an element. You're just talking about refined molybdenum, right? Like right. aluminum right. doesn't occur as an ore in on the earth. It it occurs as bauxite, and we have to refine it. And right. yeah, so it's, it's the plastic. state that it's in. But plastic doesn't exist in nature. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's got to be polymerized. Jay, it's who's that noisy time? Last week I played this noisy. <laughs> Oh, yeah, the saw, yeah, except maybe I, it's like a dog. I, I heard what I saw, or I saw what I heard. I hope How it's a dog sawing. All right, so uh-huh. right right out of the gate, I'm going to kind of give away one of the premises here, um, because everybody that sent in guesses was guessing around the same topic. So uh, a friend of the show, Charlie Ross, you guys know Charlie. Oh, Charlie. Charlie. Yep. Charlie's Charlie. our friend that works at Google. And Charlie said exactly what I thought this noise was when I heard it the several times I, I've heard it. I probably heard it dozens of times. He said, Oi, Jay, I have no idea what it is specifically, but I have heard that noisy in airplanes from below the floorboards before takeoff and yeah. after landing. Yes. That sounds uh, yeah. similar to that. Similar. So that's the right, tightening of the doors, isn't it? I don't know what it is. No, that's the noise that they make when they close the doors. That's what me and Charlie thought. He said, I can yeah. only assume it has something to do with securing the luggage or some other luggage compartment related thing. Sure does sound like a saw, though. Um, it's not a saw, Charlie. It's not a saw. And it is not the luggage compartment in an airplane, although, my God, I thought there was a guy with a tool unlocking the luggage compartment. That's what, I, that's what my imagination Well, but that's is. also the noise that it makes when they close the, the main doors. No, it's not. It's not? It is not. So, Oh, my God. I fly all the time. I definitely heard that noise right before takeoff. I don't know like what Like they the close all the doors is. and then they tighten them all right. and seal them. Yeah, mechanical. that's, what that's we, just very like closing. Mechanical that's what we as un-trained you know, uh, people hmm. that ride on airplanes oh, yeah. think. Um, so what a, is it? Another listener wrote in and said, hi, Rogues. This is Mark Gordon. He said, long-time listener since the beginning. Uh, lucky enough to have met you guys in Edinburgh in October this year. Got the book That's and right. the T-shirt. Uh, the Yay. Who's That Noisy 
for episode 700 is clearly the actuation actuation sorry the actuation of the flap mechanism probably retracting rather than extending on a mid-sized jet aircraft probably an airbus rather than a boeing keep up the good work great guess mark but that's not correct as well um, the flap on the air on the wing yeah it's not it has nothing to do no. with the uh with with the the re- retraction of the wing in any way um, well, yeah, because that you can watch, so you can hear it while you watch it, and you know that sound. But this sound, you're right. You can't see where it's coming from. So two people guessed within minutes of each other, Michael Rops and David Blanco, but David Blanco got it in first. And David says, hello, guys. The noisy for this episode is the power transfer unit, a PTU, probably from an Airbus 320. Great guess. With with these two people, I don't believe it was a guess because I think both of these guys are pilots. So this is what it actually is. So this was funny. The guy that sent in the noisy name, Matt Van, started the email with, hey, Evan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, Matt. Right. I've been doing this for, what, four years now? Uh, <laughs> hey, Matt. It's good to hear from you. Ev, do you get emails? <laughs> do you get emails with people sending in quotes where they're talking to me? Or Rebecca or Perry. Yeah, they just, go, they, they just get a click in their mind. It just goes all the way back. It's right. Yeah, just keep going backwards. So Matt wrote, uh, this is a noise that happens multiple times a day on my job. I'm an airline pilot. People often ask, what is that horrible noise or something like that? They sometimes even think there's an animal that's making noise down in the cargo hold. So I thought I'd send it in. Um, he said, the noise is made by the hydraulic PTU power transfer unit on an Airbus 320. And you'll often hear the noise right after the seatbelt sign goes off on arrival. And this happens to be because the PTU is trying to equalize the pressure between two hydraulic systems as the engines spool down. I've heard that noise a lot on airplanes. And I always thought it was some guy with like a industrial size wrench unlocking a compartment or something below decks. But it happens to be this hydraulic unit, which, you know, next time you're on an airplane, especially the Airbus 320, you're going to hear it without a doubt. Very cool. I mean, I love the fact that I, I knew the noise, you know, intimately have heard that noise many, many times. So thank you, Matt. And uh, thanks for all your guesses. Tons of people, by the way, guess this. A lot of pilots out there, a lot of people with great airplane knowledge, like talking about the exact plane and model and everything. Like, Come on, guys. Wow, that's amazing. So I have a new noisy this week. This noisy was sent in by a listener named Don Holander. Don't you love the klaxon in the beginning of that? Yeah. yeah uh, love? Say. I don't know about that. But. And if you think you know what this week's noisy is or you've heard something really cool, you can email me at WTN at skepticsguide.org. Okay. Thanks, Jay. Next, we have an interesting interview that we did with Susan Gerbeck all about Wikipedia. The entire interview will be released eventually as premium content, but we're going to play – a a small excerpt from it here in this episode. So enjoy. Uh, We are joined now by Susan Gerbeck. Susan, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Hi, everybody. 
Hello. Hey, good to see you. Hear you. <laughs> and Susan is best known for her tireless work with Gorilla Skeptics. And we haven't had you on for a while, so we thought we'd bring you on to give us an update on how everything is going. Great. Give give our listeners a reminder about what Gorilla Skeptics are and what and your work on Wikipedia. I run a Wikipedia editing team that focuses on three main topics, science, scientific skepticism, and the claims of the paranormal. We want to make sure that all those Wikipedia pages associated with those three topics are in amazing shape, and they need to be translated into as many languages as possible. So the way we do this is that I have a team of people that um, have joined me, and uh, right now we have a team of 136 people. 59 of those people are in training still, and I supply all the training, all the training documents, lessons, everything that has to do with training. We completely mentor you from your first edit continually. We have a, a Facebook group that we use. It's a secret group, and we call it the Secret Cabal. And we do all our discussions in there, and um, we follow all the rules of Wikipedia. Constant mentoring, constant discussion. It's it's a blast. We have done some pretty amazing things. But that's generally what we are. We're a Wikipedia editing team that is focusing on all languages possible and just those three topics. Awesome. Plus, we make tons of edits all the time that we can't possibly track that are, you know, sentence or a paragraph or, you know, just protecting it from vandalism. Yeah. Talk a little bit about vandalism. How often do you have to go in and correct that sort of activity and behavior? Not not that often, actually. Most Wikipedia editors are skeptics. They don't self-identify themselves that way, I, I suspect, but they are very adamant in making sure that uh, Wikipedia pages are correct. And a lot of vandalism control is done by bots, B-O-T. Mm-hmm. And so we we rarely have to do any kind of vandalism patrolling. Uh, once we write a Wikipedia page, we try to do it right. So we very rarely have um, edit wars or conflicts with other editors. It, it's um, not a frequent thing that we do, but we can't handle it. We can handle our own if we had to, but we really don't. We spend very little time dealing with those kinds of issues. Uh, how has Wikipedia evolved recently? I mean, it sounds like, I mean, it's, uh, most people think of it as like open source, like anyone can edit it, but that's not really the case anymore. Well, anyone can edit it, but, but you got some, you got some their edit you may through. not stick. Well, there's the edit may not stick. So you could go in and you could place, make an edit. And then within seconds, it's reverted. Um, it just kind of depends on, how how you do it and if it's done right and the type of page you're editing because pages have watchers and so um you know you can decide to watch a page if you'd like and it you may be the only watcher of that page or there may be a thousand people watching that page so uh, something could be reverted pretty darn quickly or it could stay there for weeks um it's evolved in the last oh maybe i should say last 8 years or so it's hard to get a Wikipedia page up if you if the person or the thing or the place or the book doesn't have notoriety. I mean, you know, you have to be notable. And in the old days, when they first created Wikipedia, they didn't have as many measures in place where you could um, um, you could put up a, a a page that was not notable. And some of those still exist on Wikipedia. They're they're sitting there just waiting to be deleted or improved, and they've been mostly ignored. We try to go through and find those pages and, and rewrite them and make them beautiful and bring color and, and loving, lovingness back to the to the page. 
It's like a garden, and you're pulling the weeds out and those sorts oh, of things. Oh, it's it's so beautiful over here. <laughs> yeah, it is like it's a garden. Yeah, that's a great way of describing it. Susan, have you detected any efforts similar to what you're doing uh, on the pro-paranormal side? <laughs> That's a great question. So there, so back in 2013 or so, whenever uh, Deepak Chopra and uh, Rupert Sheldrick were, were really upset about me, um, they started talking about how they needed their own Gerbic. They needed somebody to, to organize a pro-paranormal Wikipedia editing team. And so I joined a um, – I found their blog and that they were discussing this, and I made a fake name fake account and I signed in under my fake account and said, Hey, you know, this is a great idea. I'm a Wikipedia editor. You know, what do you guys want to do about this? And I, you know, for maybe three or four months, I kept going back and forth and they were just all talk. There was no, they weren't doing anything. So they had a Gerbic. They had their own Gerbic for a while, but they didn't know it. So I found that the paranormal world is far more apathetic than the skeptic world. That's They're good to way hear. Less I guess. organized. Oh yeah, they're 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 less organized. Um, they don't rally around necessarily one person, and they absolutely don't follow the rules. They don't understand about evidence. That's that's just ridiculous. They don't. <laughs> so they're often banned off of uh, Wikipedia, or they abandon Wikipedia. We've got many many stories of them saying, "I've had it." And then they, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm out of here. Yeah, they want evidence so for everything. Like, bye. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and they just don't get it. We're, it's, it's incredibly uh, frustrating for them. Well, it's not surprising that they react to quality control as if it's like a personal attack because that's what they do, right? If scientists or academics or journalists or anyone tries to establish any kind of professionalism or quality control, they interpret that as a conspiracy, as the thing, the deck is stacked against them, as a personal attack. It's like, nope, you're just not following the rules and here are the rules. Absolutely. The important thing to remember is, is if, as frustrating as it is, I have a team of 136 people, but that isn't even nearly enough. This, there's so much work to be done. The Wikipedia is what we need to, con well, I don't want to say control necessarily, but we need to get this in order. This should be step one on skepticism 101 is to make sure that the content that people are receiving and, and looking up themselves on the internet is in top notch shape. And we're not even, we're barely even um, starting. This is, it, it's a task that as our community should be completely embracing. Yeah. And I should have a thousand editors, not a hundred editors. Well, that, I should have 5,000. Yeah, that anticipated my next question was how could our listeners get involved and help? So it sounds like you need more editors. And it's not like a full-time job. Anything that people contribute, right, would be helpful. You just need people, everyone contributes a little bit and then that's how you get it done. Absolutely. So we have to, we participate, we train completely off of Google Docs and Facebook. So if you're not on Facebook, I'm sorry. I have no other way of really training you. So go, go at your own. You can, if you dislike Facebook, you can lock down Facebook and only use the secret cabal. It's a secret group and nobody has to, you know, you don't have to participate any further than that. But that's the easiest way we found to actually manage the team. So that's a necessity. Um, approach me on Facebook, usually friend me, uh, send me a private message so I can check out your profile and see who you are and that kind of thing. Um, if if you decide that this is something you want to do, then you would send me your email and your Wikipedia username, and then I will send you training documents. It takes a, we ask that you finish within four months. It's about two months worth of work. 
it's kind of like taking a fun cooking class with friends that you're doing at home kind of it's like an undergraduate class that you really enjoy something something fun but you're good to do at home and over facebook and then once you're trained then you could do whatever you want but to become trained there's a series of uh things we want you to do. And the last thing you will always do is rewrite a Wikipedia page. Uh, we build up to that, like it's first things is learning how to insert a photograph, how to change a citation, how to improve a citation. And it escalates as we go up there. We take people who have absolutely no skill other than, you know, maybe being able to use a computer basic. We could, I could teach anybody and, and I have, and I train people in all languages. So Great. I mean, they have to be able to speak English, of course, and at least enough to be able to train. But you do not have to have excellent English skills. You do not have to be a good speller. You don't have to be good at grammar. Um, you don't have to be a tech person at all. You just have to be somebody who's self-motivated, who can handle criti- criticism, you know, helpful criticism, and who I don't have to kick in the ass all the time to, to you know, where's yeah. that thing? What are you doing? you got to be able to kind of manage yourself time-wise. All right. Well, Susan, keep up the good work. It sounds like you are a tireless promoter of science and reason, which we like. Thank you so much. And and Mm -hmm. we will provide that link for your Facebook page. If any of our listeners want to get involved, add their little bit to your your, uh, mammoth effort, that would be great. Fantastic. Thank you, guys. All right. Take care. Thanks, Susan. Susan. Well, everyone, we're going to take another break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa Mattresses. I uh, I told you guys, you know, what, six months ago now that I, I gave my son a Lisa mattress. Mm-hmm. It is at the point now where my wife and I are going to get the Lisa mattress that he has except in the queen size because it's that freaking good. And I'm telling you, um, the mattress I have is only two years old, but it blows away that mattress. I love napping on my son's bed. I just go in there during the day and I'll take a quick snooze. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's rest for everyone. Through their 110 program, they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell, and that's more than 31,000 mattresses and counting. That's so cool. Yep. And together with the Arbor Day Foundation, Lisa plants one tree for every mattress they sell, which is really great. So give yourself the gift of a better night's rest this holiday. Get $160 off a Lisa mattress at lisa.com slash skeptics and use promo code skeptics at checkout. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash skeptics, promo code skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for science or fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week's completely random news items without any theme whatsoever? Yes. All right. Now, Brian, I want you to pay particular attention to these news items. Because you're going first. I'm just warning you ahead of time. Well, thanks for the heads up. Okay. All right, here we go. Item number one, researchers have found a way to harvest electricity directly from plants so that a single leaf can generate enough voltage to power 100 LED lights. Item number two, a new analysis finds that car crashes increase when speed limits are lowered by 10 miles per hour below engineering-based guidelines. And item number three, 
A recent study finds that introductory biology textbooks spend more time discussing insects than any other major group of animals. Okay, Brian, as our guest, you get to go first. I actually think that the, uh, what about the plants generating electricity? I'm not sure about the specific uh, number of bulbs that can be uh, powered, but that actually sounds reasonable. I think that the textbook talking, spending more time talking about insects, I'm going to say that is the fictional item. You know, with all respect to it, species have been around for 400 million years. I, I don't, I can't accept that that's, that takes up the majority of the time. Okay. Kara? Oh, man, I went first last week. I have to go second. Yeah, now you're second. Okay. (laughs) Researchers have found a way to harvest electricity directly from plants. That sounds reasonable. So the single leaf can generate enough voltage to power 100 LED lights. Totally does not sound reasonable. A new analysis finds that car crashes (laughs) increase. I want to understand this one and parse it a little more. Car crashes increase when speed limits are lowered by 10 miles per hour below engineering-based guidelines. So you mean like, what do you mean by engineering-based guidelines? Like by the manufacturer? Well, apparently, like civil engineers will look at a roadway and traffic and all kinds of variables that go, the speed limit here should be 50 miles per hour. If you make Mm -hmm. it 40 miles per hour, crashes actually go up. I would say that that's probably science. I have been to Florida. Mm. Have any of you? Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Have you noticed that, and I don't know if this has something to do, and this is not... This is not old people shaming. You know, I love the elderly. It's my population of interest in psychology. The silver surfers. Silver surfers. Um, I'm I'm not sure if it has something to do with the retirement community, like the number of individuals that live in Florida. But on most of their major highways, they have a minimum speed limit. They have that elsewhere as well. Oh, they don't have that. They don't have that anywhere in Texas, anywhere in California. They have it in. They have it in. They have it in. It's an East Coast thing. Or or in the city in New York, which is the only East Coast um, place I've lived. So, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Usually on highways, on highways, like maximum speed is sixty-five, minimum is forty-five. Right. That is so strange. Okay, so that's just an East Coast thing. (laughs) Um, I still think that there's a reason for that because it's unsafe to go slow. It causes similar types of. Um, traffic problems, and so I'm going to say that that one is science. You know, t- first uh, first one about LED light bulbs might be fiction. Let me see. Recent study finds that introductory biology textbooks spend more time discussing insects than any other major group of animals. This one's tricky, right? Because they should spend more time discussing insects because right. there are more insects than any other major group of animals. Um, we've all well, we haven't all read E.O. Wilson, but we've talked about E.O. Wilson quite a bit. We know how many beetle species there are. We know about ants. We know about all these fascinating creatures and how we can learn a lot about the natural world. But my assumption is that they actually don't talk about insects as often as they probably should, um, simply because there's probably a bias against insects that they think that children, or I shouldn't even say children, intro bio, I don't know if that's high school or college level, but that, um, you know, youths, the adolescents, the young adults, um, they think they maybe they're scared of bugs or they're not interested in bugs, so they probably put them in less often. So I'm going to go with um, with Brian and say that I think it's the fiction there, although I want to know about these leaves and 100 LEDs. Yeah, I want to know, though, too. And, and remember the bugs, too. they got to leave room to discuss all the chickens, too. So yeah, exactly. Probably... That's fair. That's completely fair. Okay, Evan? Uh, okay, so the electricity directly from plants, I recall us talking about 
that at some point on one of our 700 plus shows. <laughs> now <at> plus, some, <laughs> yeah. Plus. Um, but the point here is enough to power 100 LED lights. Well, LED light technologies come so far over the course of our 13 years that we've been uh, doing this show uh, that you, they are becoming more and more and more efficient. So you find that these, they may have even engineered these super efficient LED lights enough so that the electricity that you can get from the plants can actually power 100 of these particular LED lights. So I think that one's going to be right. As far as the car crashes go, yeah, when you lower the speed limits 10 miles an hour, I think it does increase car crashes. You know, a, a car on a highway is more like a cog in a machine in a way, rather than an than looking at it from sort of the individual driver point of view. Where there's a lot of other things happening going on around it. And if you start gumming up the works, it does probably start to tick up in the accident rates. Uh, so I think that one's science. That leaves the biology textbooks. I think that one has to be the fiction. And I think for a lot of the reasons both Brian and Kara pointed out. So I'm going to go with that one. Biology textbooks, not enough insect talk. That one's the fiction. Okay, Bob. Okay, so um, let's see. Electricity from plants. My first thought was like 100 LED lights? No way. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more reasonable it sounds the crashes, yeah. The, the idea here is though that when you lower it, but ten ten miles an hour lower than it should be, what you're doing is you're forcing to have a disparity between the people who will follow the law and go th that slow, and the people that say screw that. So that's what makes it dangerous. Is like people driving fast and people driving slow. So that makes sense as well. Um, and uh, the uh, the bio insect one, yeah. I, for the same reasons everybody else said, I think that's that's fiction. And Jay. Well, I'll tell you that uh, all the work that I've done in the studio for the SGU, I've learned a lot about lighting. And I happen to have a number banging around my head about what does an LED bulb need voltage-wise. So I think that this first one is science because I, I, I kind of think that 100 LED lights, it's possible. I don't know. I just don't know what the voltage is that the leaf can generate. Uh, the second one here about the car crashes, that crashes will increase. Because I think people will naturally fall into a pocket of speed depending on how the road was engineered. So that does make sense too. And I only have an anecdote for the last one. I mean, I took college-level biology. That's what I, I remember that. I don't remember any high school biology enough to comment on it. But my college-level biology did not spend a lot of time on, uh, on insects from my memory. So I think that one's the fiction. All right, so you guys are all in agreement. So, you know, this is the last full episode of the year. Next week is our year-end review. By the way, we still want you all to send us an email us with the, with the in the subject year-end review and send us your favorite episode, your favorite interview, your favorite science news item, your favorite bit from the show, vote for the skeptical hero of the year, vote for the skeptical jackass of the year. Anything else you want to observe about the year, send all that to us because we're going to review it all on the last episode of of the year. Next week is a is a show a pre recorded show that we did in the UK. So this is the last episode, the last regular episode we're recording mm. this year. So this is the last regular science or fiction you guys are oh, doing. So after today, people can send th those of you who do all that hard work to give us our stats, stats which is yeah. so helpful. 
Mm-hmm. Very cool. So, and you guys are all agreed. So, are you all going to end on? Are you all going to sweep me, or am I going to sweep all of you on the last? Oh, regular we're dramatic. Oh, Steve. Now that you all seem to find number two the easiest, so I'll start there. A new and oh, a new analysis <laughs> finds that car crashes increase when speed limits are lowered by ten miles per hour below engineering based guidelines. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. And yes, Yay. for the reasons that you guys oh, said. Right. So uh, if they lowered it by five miles per hour, accidents went down. But if they lowered it by mm. 10, 15, or 25 miles per hour in their, in their tests, the car, or their analysis, the car crashes went up, inc- including increased fatalities, increased injuries, increased total accidents, et cetera. So, and it's for the reasons that you said, it, it, it's disruptive if you set the speed limit lower than what people feel like they should be driving on on that road. But they also said people might be more distracted and they're not paying as much attention. If they, if they feel like you're driving slow, like you don't pay as much attention, you know? If you feel like you're driving at the appropriate speed, then you're paying more attention to your driving. Okay. Uh, but it's hard, it's hard to isolate exactly what the cause is, but yeah, they, they definitely showed the correlation here. Um, okay. Let's go to the third one, which is the one you all picked. A recent study finds that introductory biology textbooks spend more time discussing insects than any other major group of animals. So here's the – there's a, a factor that none of you brought up. Oh, no. And that is Drosophila melanogaster. Oh, damn it. That most biology uh. research is on insects. Yeah. Well, and, that or yeah. C. elegans or mice. Yeah, right. But yeah. A, a lot of it, a lot of it is done on insects. And so you yeah, would expect a biology textbook, if it's discussing the research, is going to be discussing mainly insects. Yeah, if it discusses the research. Right. However, <laughs> this is the fiction. You Yay! guys are all correct. But of course. It's kind of like you gave it to us. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. But of course. <laughs> what the study showed, what the study showed was that co- this is now college introduction. I should have said that college introductory textbooks. Oh, wow. That they spend only like 1% <gasps> discussing insects, despite the fact that they make up 60% of animals and are a huge focus of biology research. They yeah. are massively Come on. underrepresented in biology textbooks at the college level. Oh, yeah. Evan, that's what Drosophila is. Yeah. It's yeah, fruit that's fly. a fruit fly. It's a fruit fly, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, yeah, just saying this is a, this, there's an anti-insect bias in biology textbooks yeah, that really right? I are- wonder if they literally think that, like, kids don't want to read about insects, so they talk about, like, tigers more. And actually, you mentioned that, Karen. I think you're correct. I, I think there's just this cultural bias that they are kind of creepy and weird and alien-like, and let's just move on to they're not charismatic, you know, are less creepy growing. But yeah. they're so fascinating. They are I think bugs they're are totally charismatic. I agree. They are definitely fascinating. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy too. If you don't teach them about insects, then they're weird, right? But if they, yeah, exactly. When people learn yeah. about insects, there's so many insects are beautiful. I mean, there's mm-hmm. the shapes and the colors and the way that they live and move and everything. Yeah, some of them do trigger a little bit of a creep factor, like the, the centipedes, etc. But many insects are just gorgeous animals, and the, and they're they're. Diversity is so fascinating, and their yeah. their life cycle could be amazing. So it, it almost is like just like studying an alien biology. You know, it's alien to us, and it is so important for research and the ecosystem. You know that it really is a shame that it's not they're not getting their fair due in in classes. They make really good like 
pseudo aliens as well. Like yeah. Any, uh, you know, oh, when, yeah. They, when they pick an insect as like the base of an alien, uh, it's scary to me. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I completely agree. Should definitely look up Christopher Marley's artwork. He's my favorite artist. He does insane work with insects. Mm-hmm. It's just stunning and beautiful. Oh, yeah, you showed um, me those. Yeah, definitely check check out Christopher Marley if you've never seen his work. Yeah, I'm an amateur photographer. They are one of my favorite subjects mm-hmm. uh, because you could do that super close-up photography, which, by the way, it's like if you're into photography, um, that's something that you can do very easily. Uh, you can com- when you do super close up photos. There's just so many details that you could pay attention to. There's so many different ways to compose the picture. It just gives you gives you a lot of options. And insects are fantastic subjects of close up photography. That's part of you know part of the reason why I love them. But anyway, let's go back to number one. Researchers have found a way to harvest electricity directly from plants so that a single leaf can generate enough voltage to power a hundred LED lights. This, of course, is science. That's a hundred and fifty volts, by the way, to do those one hundred LED light bulbs simultaneously. Wow. And this That's is just a, a regular old you know plant. You know this is this is not That's cool. So what is this? What is the source of that electricity? Do you guys think? I mean, it's got to be some sort of differential, right? Like some sort of. Um, well, yeah, but I mean, what's the energy coming from? Uh, Photosynthesis. Cell membranes, like something happening across a cell membrane. Yeah. No, it's not photosynthesis, and it's not across the cell membrane. It's what? It's sugar. I mean, it's not. It's not sugar. It's not. It's not a metabolite. So the question is, what force is being transferred into electricity? Right? Osmosis. Water. It's, nope. It's touch. Touch. It's mechanical. Yeah. Mm. Some leaves. Some some trees. Some plants. You know, the leaves when they move, when they physically move, yeah. or when something touches them. They build up an electrical charge on their surface, and then that electrical charge is immediately transported into the leaf and down the stem and distributed to the rest of the plant. Neat. And what they found is they could attach something to the stem of the of the leaf and collect, divert that electrical current. Um, cool. So when the leaf something touches it or when wind blows against it, when it rustles in the wind, because wind counts as something touching it, it generates up to 150 volts. Now, it's only for a second or two. That's the part I left out. It's not continuously powering 100 LED lights. It's But that imagine this. Imagine a massive tree where each leaf has one of these things at the stem harvesting electricity, then it's attached to 100 LEDs. When the wind blows, there'll be this cascading you know, display of LED lights as the, the wind is rustling through the leaves of the tree. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, mm-hmm. awesome. And of course, if you buffer it, I mean, you could use this as a way of just – creating light from plants. You could have a plant in your living room or whatever that just generates a low level of of, of light, you know, just from mechanical vibrations or whatever. Very interesting. Very, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And then they also said you could make artificial leaves or like make what they call a hybrid tree, right, Jay? It's a hybrid. <laughs> <laughs> hybrid. <laughs> every week. Yeah. And, which would, you know, significantly increase the amount of electricity that's generated because it could essentially make artificial leaves that will touch the real ones and generate more electricity. So you could engineer it a little bit to maximize that effect. Steve, did it say over what period of time that mechanical energy was stored? I mean, like, what are we talking about here? So again, they said it lasts a second or two. When Oh, sure. It lasts a second or two, but is that the, uh, the buildup of the charge comes from 
How, oh, like how long does it take to build yeah. up the char? Yeah, I think it's right. almost instantaneous. It's very quick. It's like as soon so as you like move a, it, 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 it's an immediate reaction to the the, the physical force. It, tra- it you know gets transferred into a buildup of electro of static electricity essentially on the surface of the leaf, which then gets doesn't sit there. It gets absorbed into the leaf and transferred down the stem. So it's all very quick. I think you just uh, helped me solve a problem that was happening with a new story. About oh, yeah. You. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey. yeah. <laughs> and yeah the- you see that, guys? That's hard science fiction in action on the SGU. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the process is called contact electrification. That's yep. the phenomenon that's, that's happening. Contact yep. <laughs> phenomenon. <It's> pretty cool. <laughs> Steve, you know what's even cooler? What's that, Jay? That right now we need only 110 people to become patrons in order for me to work for the SGU full time. Yeah, we're no getting way. very close, 110. 110. We've dropped by like 100 in the last two weeks. See if we can get there by the end of the year. If you want to help support the work that we do, guys, you can go to patreon.com forward slash skeptics guide. All right. Thanks, Jay. Evan, give us a quote. This quote was offered up by a listener, Gareth Lurie. Thank you, Gareth. And here's what he wrote, and then I'll tell you the quote. Long time, first time, I was reading a wondering children's book about curiosity, the story of a Mars rover by Marcus Motum. At the end of the book, there is a quote from Clara Marr, the winner of the competition to name the Mars rover. And here's her quote. Curiosity is the passion that drives us through our everyday lives. We have become explorers and scientists with our need to ask questions and to wonder. We will never know everything there is to know, but with our burning curiosity, we have learned so much. That's very nice. Really nice. Really nice. Um, all right. Thanks, Evan. Thank you. Thank you guys for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Sure, thanks, thanks, Steve. Steve. Brian, it's good to have you back on the show. It was yeah, a lot Brian. of fun, as, as usual. Yeah. Thank you so yeah, much. Brian. Again, congratulations on your new book. I look forward to reading it. He has 10,000 Thunders, so find it on Amazon. And, guys... Yes. Next week yeah. is our year-end review. Oh, my gosh. We're gonna, it's, it's always a fun. What are we going to be reviewing? The whole year in skepticism and <laughs> the oh, SGU. The whole year in skepticism, yes. You got it? What a year. All right. It, it's always a fun show. I'm looking forward to it. Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions. Dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 